0: We are in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. We will read through the end of the chapter this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. Eleven verses this morning for us to read together. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, so Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue while Aquila and Priscilla heard or when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. You to Just have a seat. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning Uh, for Mother's Day in our celebration. uh, We obviously don't focus on that extensively in our service, but this morning we want to have a time of prayer uh, in Thanksgiving and for our moms. And so we're going to uh, do that this morning. Moms, you know who you are. But more importantly, the rest of us know who you are, (laughs) who mom is. And the mother of our children. And so we want to uh, not just recognize mothers. That's really the purpose of this day, to celebrate that. Um, But we have a higher purpose than just uh, recognizing it. Our purpose is to dedicate uh, that role as God designed it and ordained it. And so we want to do that this morning through prayer. And uh, I invite you to... Uh, normally, we'd do this in the, in the midst... I would do this in the midst of our the pastoral prayer earlier, but I wanted to set it aside today. Uh, and so, uh, join me in prayer for our moms, if you will. Lord God, we do thank you for our family. That institution that you have granted us uh, as a basis of our society, of our engagement one with another, uh, of our social network by which... Uh, You've brought order to this world. And Lord, we uh, do see it under assault today. Not anything new, for there's nothing new under the sun. But we see it in our day uh, in a very forward and open fashion. And so Lord, we come before you knowing that uh, you are the judge of all the earth. And it is before you that men must answer. But that is also before you that your people must humble themselves. And so, Lord, while many would seek to take up the battle for the family as the world would, we choose to do it as you've called us to, and that is to uh, bring it before you. So, Lord, we, we celebrate. And commemorate and remember the role of our individual mothers. We also recognize that we have responsibility towards the role that you have described and delineated in Scripture. And we pray that you might find us committed to it. To be exemplary to the world of the roles that you have Uh, placed upon us within our homes. And Lord, we do commit this morning our moms, mothers to you. We pray that in their relationships within the home, not only as mother, but as wife, perhaps also as grandmother and other roles of nurturing. uh, Lord, we commit them to you. We pray that they might first and foremost seek your face. That they might follow after you and be exemplary to those uh, with whom they minister within the home. They might do so in word, in action, and in spirit. It might be evident to their children that they honor their Lord, first and foremost, that they honor their husband and that they will lead their children into your truth. Lord, we also continue to pray that you might encourage us to see the great value of life. That again, we see our world in opposition to your blessing. That when you describe Children, as a blessing, the world sees them as a hardship. So, Lord, we pray you might find us again with a different spirit. A spirit that you would desire us to have. That we might rejoice in that wondrous blessing that you've given to us of life. That rather than looking at it through the perspective of the world that we might look at it through Your Word where You have instructed us to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And Lord, we just thank You for being able to participate in that process of bringing forth life. But then to be able to also be involved in those lives that we might see them come to new life. In this, we certainly pray. We pray the prayer of mothers who know that they have children who are not serving you, are not walking your ways. And we know the heartache that is there and we share it. And we pray that you might work in those lives to convict and to direct. They might be responsive to you Lord, we also this day see a world that wants to deny that there is a truth. And Lord, our prayer is that within our homes, and today particularly we think of our mothers, that they might communicate that there is one authority from which all truth is derived. And it's not mom and dad, it's not what makes her happy, but what, but it comes from you. And Lord, we pray that that might that righteousness that's from above might be evident in our homes, particularly among our parents. And, Lord, today we commit them to you. We thank you for them, and we thank you for that life that you've given to us, and we thank you for your word of truth. And we again commit them to you, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we want to press on our study in Acts. And we're in kind of a transition where we are moving from um, Paul's entry into Macedonia in Achaia. And... uh, that transition is going to take us through a course of some time and a series of events that Luke spends really very little time on. And it's going to move us into from from his extensive ministry in Corinth to his extensive ministry in Ephesus. And uh, this is interesting because he kind of just jumped over Ephesus. Remember that Paul wanted to go up into Asia. He was not permitted by the Spirit. by. Uh, circumstances, whatever, and, and uh, God led him to head to Macedonia. As soon as he gets that call, he responds and makes a beeline directly to Macedonia and uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, um, and he just bypasses an intermediate area of uh, what, what today is, is western Turkey. And and Ephesus, of course, the key city there. We're going to be moving toward Ephesus. Of course, he's going to visit it today in our text. Um, But his focus of ministry is going to be there as he uh, gets going into his third missionary journey. Um, But we want to see this transition period not just fly through. it. I think there's some valuable things here for us to study and to consider as we look at Paul's ministry and the ministry of God among the churches. And... I really enjoy this part of Acts because uh, we get into some of the lay ministry within the church and the fact that uh, God just doesn't have one superhero that He works through. He works through all of His children, all the parts of the body of Christ. And we get to see that at work here in this uh, pretty brief passage. Um, And so we want to... uh, Press on. We left Paul in Corinth. We find him heading now, in verse 18, um, to uh, head for Syria. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are the two that we're going to be focusing in on. We're going to follow them for a little bit as they follow Paul. And so Aquila and Priscilla, remember, are uh, those that were removed from Rome, among the Jews, that were uh, kicked out of Rome. They landed in Corinth, came across a fellow tent maker named Paul, uh, joined in business with him in tent making, and set up shop there in Corinth. Uh, they apparently came to Christ in that environment, and although we're not given the details of that conversion, uh, we find them now being faithful uh, followers of, of uh, the message that Paul is communicating. Uh, they're in Corinth and they're going to go with them and that might seem kind of strange, they just pick up and go but when you're making tents, it's easy to go right, because it's a portable domicile so, kind of a nice business to have where you can be portable like that, um, you ever wonder what kind of tents they had always wondered that of course maybe it's like the contractor of his house is falling down while he's building gorgeous houses for other people, I don't know, do plumbers have the worst plumbing in their house or the best depends I think but they're out there. They're going to travel with Paul. They're going to head out, and this is not unusual. Remember that we have had a pretty large entourage with Paul at times, where he comes into communities sometimes with six, seven, eight men along with him. Uh, that are representatives of various churches here. Aquila and Priscilla are—I'm sorry, yeah—Aquila and Priscilla are ready to uh, follow him and uh, in ministry. Uh, he arrives in Syria, and it says in, in uh, or he's heading for Syria, and uh, he, he arrives in Syria, and we find this interesting statement that uh, Paul has set it in his mind and in his heart that he wants to celebrate uh, what would probably be the Passover. It could have been another feast. We're not really identified which feast we're, that he wants to attend, um, but he wants to get back to Jerusalem. And to move him along, he has taken a vow. And uh, we're kind of, well, why does he have to cut his hair? Because he took a vow. Um, One of the facets of Jewish worship, and by the way, let me just share on the side here. We tend to think of Paul as the missionary, the apostle to the Gentiles. And we've almost turned him into a Gentile in the course of that. And I think somewhere along the line, we kind of forget... How comfortable he is being a Jewish person! That this is how he was raised. This is this is his behavior. This is this, these are his traditions, and he is very comfortable in the synagogue. He is very comfortable moving about in the on the Temple Mount. Uh, he is he is uh, well instructed, and, and, and as a rabbi of Israel, uh, in in understanding uh, the the actions and and the uh, and the. Uh, uh, Levitical system of, of uh, his people. And uh, while we often associate him with Gentilian activity, uh, I want to just remind you again, we're talking about a converted Jewish rabbi. Um, and he still is very comfortable with his Jewishness. But he recognizes that his Messiah has completed that. That while the law is fulfilled in Christ, and he certainly isn't trusting in that, he is free to live within it and, even and of course, live above it. That is a righteousness that is more than the law. And so we find that Paul here is going to do an odd thing. Uh, he's going to take a vow. He's going to shave his head, which means that his intention is, and when an individual does this kind of a vow, uh, what their intention is is that all the hair has grown between the time of taking that vow and their arrival in Jerusalem is dedicated to the Lord. And that is when they get there, they will save again whatever has grown and they will burn it before the Lord as a sacrifice. That they have basically made the statement that I'm going to get to Jerusalem this year. I'm going to make it there. I'm going to make that commitment. And in Centuria, apparently Paul made this vow. And, and it's going to drive him. Uh, while he is enticed to stay and minister, he recognizes that if I've taken a vow, I need to fulfill it before the Lord. And this is going to press me to make sure that I am in Jerusalem this year for the feast. And so, we find him out and uh, ready to engage in this. Now, some have taken issue with this. You know, the Bible says not to take vows, like your yes be yes, your no be, but no. Um, But uh, Paul, in this instance, recognizes that if we are serious, if this is significant, if there is purpose, that there is a place for this kind of activity for making these commitments before the Lord. But let us be serious in it. That if you're going to make a commitment before the Lord, that He is going to hold you to fulfilling that commitment. Period. This is not about uh, on New Year's Eve making uh, these resolutions that might last uh, until the Super Bowl. Um, That's not what we're doing here. Paul is taking it very seriously and is very committed to fulfilling this, this vow, this, this commitment to God that this year he will be at this feast uh, and offering sacrifice before the Lord of, uh, with, on the, uh, apparently within the Jewish uh, temple there. And so he's made this commitment and uh, this is going to press him now from Centria, uh to get into Jerusalem and uh, to get home. And home for him, we've concluded, is Antioch. And so here he is traveling back, and uh, in the past he made kind of a circuitous route to get home, uh, to try to visit the churches and strengthen them and encourage them. Uh, but we find him making a, a fairly brief uh trip as uh, directly as he is able to do. But in that trip he lands in Ephesus, and this is a major port city of Rome. And uh, that opens up into Asia Minor. Uh, and uh, Rome spent extensive amounts of uh, money outlaid to keep this port open all the time. Uh, occasionally they would close the port down to excavate it um, because of the silt that comes down from the mountains, uh, from the river there, would fill the port in. And it was so important to the Romans that they would close it down, they would bar- put a barricade dam up the river, and they would excavate this port. Uh, can you imagine all the work that is involved in doing all of that? And they would excavate the port to make sure that the that the both could get in there and uh, the ships could arrive. Uh, and so uh, we, we feel that's probably what happens later on in Acts when it says that Paul had to sail by Ephesus and uh, went on. Um, that that might have been one of those years where Rome was was cleaning out the port of Ephesus. But this would have been an easy place to arrive at. Paul lands there and it says that uh, he is so intent on making the next boat, that he leaves everybody there. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla there at the port. He says, I'm going to leave you here. Uh, Apparently, they're trying to get the next boat out uh, and find out how to get as quickly as they can to Jerusalem. And while they're there at the port, it says Paul made his way to the synagogue. And as he has done in community after community... He has begun the framework of the gospel in, amongst his people. We find him here um, entering the synagogue and engaging the Jews once again at the end of verse 19 with the reasonableness of Christ, the Messiah, being Jesus of Nazareth who died, was buried, and rose again. And this is the message, that he engages with them. And he finds among the Ephesians Jewish population a somewhat receptive audience. Now remember, it usually takes a few Sabbaths before he riles up his enemies. Remember that? Uh, About the third Sabbath, they've had enough of this. They're suddenly realizing where this thing is going and how devastating it could be to their position within the synagogue or position within the community, they suddenly find out that people are, are flocking in to hear this guy talk about this Jesus of Nazareth, and they become jealous. Um, it takes a few weeks, if you notice, in community after community, before the opposition within the synagogue really raises up against Paul. And so, this is an unusual for him to the first week, say, uh, "Why don't you stay and, and we'd like to hear more. We'd like to engage you on this matter. We'd say, "What a wide open door for the gospel." Again, we could criticize him and say, "Oh, if you'd only not taken that vow. Just think of what you could do here. But God is at work, because Paul isn't the only agent available to Paul to do his labor. There's Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla are going to stay there. And they, they, they um, are going to uh, open those the, that dialogue, or continue the dialogue, I should say, that Paul has initiated there in, in the synagogue with the Jews of Ephesus. And they're going to send Paul on. And they're going to stay. They're going to engage these that Paul opens the door in the synagogue to hear the message of Christ. But again, we do not find a wide reception of Christ as Savior as we would think of it, but in verse 20 it says, they simply wanted to hear some more. They asked for more uh, engagement with this idea that the Messiah must be one who would suffer cruelly and die and be raised again, uh, and that that had come to fruition in Judea a couple of decades ago, and so Paul is pressed and wants to move on to get to uh, Jerusalem. He he does so. We are told uh, he gets to Caesarea by the sea uh, again, major port city uh, that uh, uh, frequented by Herod and and uh, other Jewish nobles. Uh, he goes up, which you always go up to Jerusalem, right? It's on a hill. You always go up to Jerusalem. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's north, south, east, or west. You always go up when you get to, when you go to Jerusalem. And so he went up to Jerusalem, um, and uh, he greeted the church. Apparently fulfilled his vow there and uh, was not remiss to make contact with the uh, the body of believers there, which is great to see. Uh, and let me just encourage you. It's don't be afraid to greet the brethren in other communities. Go up and find a church and just uh, be able to, to sit down and hear God's word among them. And so Paul goes in and makes sure that if I'm going to visit, I'm going to make sure I greet the church that's here in Jerusalem. His vow was not toward the church. It is certain his vow involved a, a requisite visit to the temple. Um, but he was not going to come there and not visit the church. And although we'd have that kind of heart, that kind of desire, um, not only after God, but after the people of God, one of the things i always enjoyed traveling on your behalf to the mission fields is being able to greet the churches. And we've kind of lost that a little bit in this nation. But in other um, countries, when you have an opportunity to come in, the expectation is that you're going to stand up in front of the, the body and greet them in the name of the church you came from. And so I go to Haiti and I, I send my greetings from the brethren, your brethren, at Desert Hills Baptist Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, whom they've never met and you, most of you have never met any of them. But you are brethren, and it is necessary, appropriate, and right that we greet one another and so Paul here isn't just bringing greetings from himself to the church; he's bringing greetings from all the churches he has started to them and so I take your greetings and we try to I, I try to put that in your mind by before I leave on one of those trips to India or Haiti or Peru um to set aside and say our we're going to bring a greeting to them. On one occasion, I think we did it by video and had you greet them, uh, that we might see that this is our family. They are distanced from us. They are different from us. Uh, but we are the same bloodline, <laughs> the blood of Christ. And so we have this opportunity to greet. We've lo- lost that here. And um, in our culture here, uh, in our Ideas of doing church. Um, And so I've gone into churches where I just thought I'd sneak in and plop myself down. And uh, as soon as they found out who I was, I was up front having to greet the church. Not just on my own behalf, but on behalf of you, the saints. So Paul does this. On his trip into Jerusalem, he is going to greet the church. He is um, then going to go home. To Antioch, And again, he goes down to Antioch. I know Antioch is north, and we think, well, if you're going north, you're going up. Um, but again, you're leaving Jerusalem, so you're going down. Okay, you always go up to Jerusalem. You always go down from Jerusalem. And he's going to head north to Antioch. And there, um, of course, he's going to be reunited with uh, that precious body of saints that commissioned him to that work so many years ago and where he can again rehearse with them all that God has done there and of course, verse twenty-three says that he had spent some time with them. And every time we find him coming into Antioch, we find him spending some time. This is his place of encouragement. This is his place of rejuvenation. This is his place uh, of this is his home. In many many respects, spiritually, this is uh, his his home base, and he wants to spend time there with the brethren. And finally he departs and we find him now taking a trip, visiting in order, strengthening all the disciples. And there's that systematic, uh, making sure he touches base with all these churches. He has has, uh, been privileged to be involved in the the beginning of them and he's going to head back to Ephesus. Well, while he is on this trip, and we can tell that this is not a trip of a week or two. My family's getting ready to go on a two-week trip. We're going to miss one Sunday and that's big. Um, it's been a couple years since I've missed a Sunday. And you um, think, oh, he's going to be gone for a week. <laughs> and I know that they say when the, when the cats away, the mice will play, right? And so Pastor Leachman, though, is going to keep you straight and narrow for a week. Um, no, this isn't for a week's vacation. The man is going to be gone for a while. And Aquila Priscilla or Ephesus... They've had one, from what we can tell, there is one Sabbath of introduction by Paul to the gospel in the synagogue of Ephesus. Cole and Priscilla are there. These aren't trained rabbis. These aren't Levites. These are just a husband and wife team of tent makers. But their impact is Unforgettable. so while Paul is doing all this traveling, back in Ephesus, um, things are happening. Uh, among them is that uh, a man has shown up, a godly man. It says that he is eloquent, um, which is very different than Paul, apparently, from Paul's own testimony. <laughs> uh, this man is eloquent, and he is mighty in the scriptures. And he is, one, he is a bold person. Now, we often think of Paul as bold, um, but I I, I tend to see Paul more as one who God emboldens. Uh, It's not necessarily a natural state for him. Um, And we find him often, uh, especially when you've been beaten and chased out of town as often as he has, uh, that God has to embolden him, just as we saw there uh, where God says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have many people in this town. You're not going to suffer so bad here. Don't be afraid. Preach. Apollos comes in, and we have almost this this individual that that just is ready to engage people. Look a few verses later when it talked about um, what he did once he received Christ. It says in verse 28, He vigorously refuted the Jews publicly. I mean, this guy would take on anybody in any forum. And he could do it with the best of them. Nobody intimidated him. He could do it with the eloquence of words. He knew the scriptures. And now, having been... And I love the fact... You see the contrast here? he the, the, taken aside privately by Aquila and Priscilla to be showed the rest of the story. And they take him up, and they see that he is, knows the scriptures. He's eloquent. He loves God. He wants to serve Him, but he just doesn't have the whole story. And so they take him aside and they privately instruct him of of the historical fact of Christ. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And this man takes that, and with all the rest that is in his possession, he is going to engage people, and he's going to. Do it dramatically uh this is he's vigorously refuting the Jews publicly. I mean there is no stopping this guy he has that spirit and that that uh character that 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 personality that he's gonna do this he's just gonna confront people and he's gonna he, he does he doesn't care if he takes a mad he doesn't he he just has this urgency about him and the, the quality of character to engage them. Very different than Paul. Very different. But still very valuable. But let's go back to Aquil and Priscilla. So here comes this guy. And he comes in. Now, a lot of times in our minds we get pictures of what th- things are going on. We might think of this as a younger guy. Not the case. Couldn't be can't be a young man. Why? He's been out there preaching the message of John the Baptist since John the Baptist. Now let's wrap our heads around that a little bit. All he knew about it was John the Baptist. Which means that you have to back up over 20 years. For Paul has been First in Troas for high, you know, and then they went and dug him up. And then in Antioch for some time, uh, in addition to how long he's in Damascus. Two missionary journeys. We're talking possibly close to 30 years that Paul has been in ministry. Plus the three years of Christ, where John the Baptist has been to So this man has been out of contact with Jerusalem for 30, 35 years. All this time, and again, we need to consider this for a little while, all this time, he's been waiting for the Messiah. But you see, John's baptism was a baptism of anticipation. It was saying, I want to turn from my sin and I want to be among the people of Israel that are looking for her consolation. I want to be numbered with them. I want to be one of the anticipating ones. I want to be ones who are looking for the Christ to come. I want to be numbered with them and receive John's baptism. And somehow between that event and more than likely before Christ came and was himself baptized by John, um, Apollos was taken out of the area. And here he has been faithfully following, waiting, expecting, looking for the Messiah. Because that was John's repentance. Repent for the kingdom of... Or John's message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 30 years later, this guy is still out there saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here somewhere. And he doesn't know. About Jesus, He has not been uh, familiar with, with the events that transpired those decades earlier in Jerusalem at Golgotha and at the empty tomb. He, he hasn't been exposed to all of that yet. But he's still preaching this message. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's proving from the scriptures that the Messiah must come. That this was the time and what what it would look like when he came. That he would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. This was the message of John, the baptizer. And this was Apollos' message. Oh, he loved the Lord. He was waiting for the Messiah. So when Aquila... I'm sorry. Uh, when call and Priscilla take him aside, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful description. It says that they heard him, they took him aside, and explained him the way of God more accurately. Now this man has been faithful in this ministry, whether he was a lay person who was ministering as he did business, or whether... He was uh, traveling and trusting in the Lord for caring for his needs as a disciple of John, uh, which John had those kinds of disciples who were out there proclaiming this message and baptizing in the baptism of John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming. Um, It could have been either one, but we find him engaged in this message and seeming to be in an itinerant ministry. And here are two... Here's a couple... (laughs) Two believers in the synagogue hear this guy, and oh, he's this close. He's this close. Let's invite him over for supper. (laughs) And let's tell him about what happened in Jerusalem in the last 30 years that he missed. You see, it wasn't that he was resistant to the gospel. It wasn't that he didn't accept that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't know. And when we encounter individuals who are searching and are, are looking, um, I have a very different approach to them than those who are resistant and are trusting in themselves and simply not interested in the things of God but here is one who has committed himself but he doesn't have all the tools to fully engage his faith and Aquila and Priscilla come alongside of him and, and that description that, that we're going to show you the way of God more accurately There's more precision here. You're looking for a Messiah. We're going to tell you about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's the one. He has come. He has done exactly what you are declaring that he had to have done. He's already done it. Now remember that Aquila and Priscilla, from what we could tell, they weren't eyewitnesses. They received that message from Paul. This couple, I think, are are, are wonderful examples for us to follow. They're more like us. Or I should say, we're more like them than maybe any of these others. Paul had that Road to Damascus interview with Christ. He could say, I have seen the Messiah resurrected, the resurrected one. I've seen him. I've met him. Paul describes the eyewitnesses that many were still alive even when he was writing letters to the churches. Many were still alive that saw him, engaged with him. But Aquila and Priscilla received that message from Paul. And now, having never witnessed those events, they are steering the way with others. And they take this one who is looking for a deliverer and say, he's come. And rehearsed for him the account of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's all Apollos had to hear. And he'd been ready to hear that for 30 years. (laughs) Can you imagine? 30 years he'd been waiting to hear this. He had come. Messiah has arrived. Well, Apollos' mission hasn't changed. His calling has not been disrupted. He is still set on a course of proclaiming wherever God would lead him, that there is a deliverer. But now he has the whole message. The whole story. And so he is ready to just keep moving and having engaged there in Ephesus and, and uh, he's ready to head across the Aegean Sea uh, into what we would think of as the modern country of Greece but divided up into three or four areas, regions. He is ready to go over into where Paul just came from. And he is ready to engage yet another group of people with this complete message, this accurate description of the Messiah. And he wanted to go over there, and so those brethren in Ephesus write to the brethren in Corinth, in and say, here's one for you to receive into the... Your graces and let him minister. And once again, we see the great necessity and value of a fellowship of churches. In my time in the ministry, I have heard some incredible little stories um, where this has failed. Um, that in the selection process of pastors and and getting them in contact with the churches where they need to be ministering, um, there have been a lot of hard feelings between churches. Churches who have lost their pastors they didn't want to lose to other churches. And worse than that, churches that palmed off bad pastors on other churches. You say, does that happen? It has and does. And I remember a family member coming and saying, say, why wouldn't they tell us that he was this bad? Well, they wanted to get rid of him too. And they were only interested in their own, in seeking out their own interests. And this isn't godly. The fellowship of the saints is more than just the interest of one local church. It is the interest of the church universal. It is interested in the fellowship of all the churches that we all grow in unity and in the knowledge of our, unity of our faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is our interest... That every church in this town that proclaims God's Word in sincerity and truth without compromise and in love uh, is benefited. It is our desire that they succeed. We're not in competition with them. We are in the same ministry. And here one church from one side of the HGNC, sends over, uh, knows that this man is heading that way and says, you need to know this is one of the good guys. Let him minister. And says, and when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. Now notice, they had already believed. And Paul, we say, well, he was in that region for quite a while. But now comes another man, another minister who comes upon the scene and we have now uh, another approach to all the same information, the same message, the same foundation, but we have the approach of Apollos and he comes in and it is, it is a benefit to those who had already believed. That is that they matured. we continue to scratch our heads at the city of Corinth who had access to these kinds of men and still thought that they could live in sin. It's hard to even conceive, but it gives us some insight into the weakness of men in righteousness. These people had access to, apparently, Peter himself, to Paul, to Apollos, and instead of it producing righteousness as it should have, while the initial benefit was that the saints grew and became even more grounded in their truth of the gospel and able to engage their community more boldly um, because of the ministry of Apollos. By the time we get to 1 Corinthians, we find Part of the church saying, I'm of Apollos. Part of the church saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I'm of Jesus. We find all this division. Like Israel in her land when she was blessed with great plenty. When the church is blessed with great spiritual abundance. um, It doesn't always equal godliness. Israel had great plenty, and in the midst of that plenty, they turned from God. In the midst of this bounty that God blessed them with, they became duplicit in their walk. They served Jesus, or they served Jehovah on Saturday, and they served the gods of the heathen during the week. And so in Corinth, with all this great bounty, that God had brought into their region of godly men, all with different strengths and weaknesses and approaches and, and all the value that is there, you think certainly this is a church that is just going just gonna to be the, the, the pillar for the Western world of Christ, in Christianity. But we find it miring itself in sin. And we shrug and we go, how did that happen? Well, it's not hard to explain because all I have to do is invite you to look around. How did it happen here? I don't know if you realize this, but you are in the spiritually most privileged place historically on the planet for the last 150 years. Maybe 250 years. Do you know where most of the Christian literature is printed? Here. Our Bible colleges and seminaries are most proliferated here. We send Bibles around the world that are produced here. We have the greatest freedom of worship perhaps anywhere in the in the world here and so I ask you with all that spiritual wealth are we more righteous (laughs) so how did that happen and we have this spiritual heritage of great men of God in our nation that have proclaimed the Word. And, and when we look back at the Billy Sundays and the Moody's and the, and the Jonathan Edwards and, and all through the, the history of our nation, and, we, and tonight we're going to have a baccalaureate service. I'll share this tonight too. But, but uh, you know, baccalaureates were, were church services before the graduation because so many of the graduates were really grad- had to have a degree in Bible. So the expectation was that they should be able to get up and preach a message, a devotional, in Latin to prove that they were well-educated. That's where our country was. What happened? What is happening? So before we fault the region of Achaia too much, before we put the hammer down on Corinth, let's realize that we are in their condition. They have every advantage. Did they not? This is the place where Paul stayed perhaps the longest so far. Now they have a guy named Apollos coming across. They have the benefit of the believers in Ephesus saying, here's the credentials for this guy. Uh, engage him in ministry. We see the benefit that he, that he went out there boldly in the streets and took on any comers. With the scriptures and with his eloquence, They had all these spiritual benefits. And we find them divided, immoral, greedy, confused, chaotic in their worship. How did that happen? Well, look around way it happened here because out of much bounty the heart of man can still rebel and perhaps out of that bounty there comes a wellspring of pride that thinks that well if we're doing it it must be biblical because we're the spiritual leaders of the world And we stop examining ourselves. We stop doing what the prophet said and consider our ways. And really get in the Bible and say, I don't care if it's American or not. I want to know what God wants me to do. The way God wants me to do it. For the reasons God wants me to do it. That's radical in our country. And I would contend that as much as our churches need good preaching, our churches need good Aquila and Priscilla's that know the way of God accurately. And that's why we've emphasized the teaching ministry here in this church is so that we have a body of ministers a body of believers who minister one to another and can each independently, if necessary, take this message and accurately convey it and accurately perceive that this one doesn't quite meet the standard. And I can take God's Word and I can, I can compare that like the Bereans that we saw and this is what we desperately need is not just preachers that can do it, Um, I I have to believe there's still a few out there that, that, and and there are. Um, uh, I'm not going to follow the way of Elijah and say I'm the last one. Uh, I'm not going to do that. There are guys out there that are preaching the truth but we desperately need churches filled with Aquiles and Priscilla's who can recognize an accurate message or an inaccurate message that can recognize that is right practice within the church and that is wrong practice within the church that they can come and humble themselves before God's Word and say if He says I must do it, I will do it. Whether my culture or my religious heritage agrees with it or not. And so we have, like Corinth and Achaia, been blessed. Don't think that that great spiritual heritage and wealth means that we must be doing everything right. In fact, it probably means the opposite. It means that we have grown lax and arrogant in our study of God's Word and its application in our lives. We have failed to be the two tent makers that can take even the best itinerant preacher and straighten him if necessary. Call them lay people. And by we, I mean those in the ministry. We call ourselves in the ministry and we call you lay people. It's shameful terminology. For we, all, who have trusted in Christ, are ministers, servants of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We carry that responsibility To not just know someone who knows. (laughs) But to know the truth. And be able to communicate it accurately. To defend it. To identify it. And to identify when what we're hearing is not the truth. This requires us to humble ourselves. Sufficiently to let the word of God penetrate us and change us, transform our thinking to agree with God's thinking so that our living will agree with his, with his expectations. The church of Corinth had every advantage. But when Aquila and Priscilla left with Paul to Ephesus, part of the advantage went with them. Ephesus was going to be gained by their coming. As much as Apollos, as much as Paul, i convinced that it is these these lay ministers within Paul's ministry, within Corinth, and now within Ephesus are, is cannot be overstated. Just as Your responsibility to be ministers of the gospel in your church, in your community, cannot be overstated. Let Aquila and Priscilla be your model, our model. That we might not just depend upon our heritage or our religious backdrop and blessing that we might rely singularly upon the Spirit of God to lead us into His truth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your Word and its truth. And we thank You for the examples that it cites. And for the way you use various people to accomplish your purposes, that you have a variety of within your body, all to serve the head, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for Who can reason in the synagogue? We thank you for the Apollos who can challenge them publicly. We thank you for these who take that up as their vocation. Lord, we also thank you for the Quills and Priscillas. We take up the ministry as our avocation. They might serve you faithfully, and Lord. We pray that you might guard not only this church but your church, universal, from the pitfalls that we see happening in the abundance that Corinth enjoyed. And Lord, we pray that you might guard our hearts and our churches where we are reticent to follow your word, Lord, convict us further. And Lord, we also pray this morning for our fellow churches that are engaging the same opposition and sometimes more, often more, and what we are engaging in. They're confronting the same disinterest in the things of God, the same sickness that we see in Corinth that has penetrated so many of our churches. And Lord, we pray that you might raise up godly men and women in pews, in seats, in congregations to require more their church that we follow you more accurately with all our heart mind soul and strength Lord we pray for our churches not only in our fellowship of churches that we participate in but the fellowship of all your churches Lord we pray you might work in them we thank you for them pray that we might be numbered among those who would faithfully serve you in righteousness and truth. Help us, Lord, in that endeavor. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.